Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Good morning. That song gets my heart rate up. It's good. Um, Our reading is from Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. And after I read, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, if you'll respond by saying, thanks be to God. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Wow, thank you. That was a nice welcome. Um, you know, this is one of those days where you could have, like, stayed in bed, right? You could have just, with the rain and the darkness, it would have been great. Thank you for coming out. Oh, thank you for being here. It's so great to have you guys here today to worship the Lord Jesus. How about that Peter, huh? How about that Peter? What is up with that guy, right? So, so this passage... It brings so many questions to mind. I, I know it does for me. As you read down through it, you see uh, Jesus saying all these things. He says, you're Peter on this rock. What's the rock exactly? We're going to talk about that. A little further on, it talks about, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell won't pre- What are the gates of hell? Right? What is that all about? And then there's this idea of binding and losing. Right? What does that mean? How do we bind and how do we lose things? Is that today? And then Peter has the keys. What are the keys? Do we have keys today? Was it only for him or was it, what, what is it? And then that Peter, Jesus calls him Satan. Right? Tons of questions from this passage. But I tell you this morning, The most important question comes 
from Jesus to Peter, to the disciples. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So my plan is I want to go through this passage in an expository manner, meaning I want to go through, I want to, I want to go through and simply show you and tell you what these things mean and what they are. I'm going to expound the scriptures. I'm going to teach. And then at the end, I want to make a few points, three or four points, and kind of home in on a couple of things. So that's the plan. You guys with me? All right, that's good. Let's pray. Father God, uh, help me as I go through this passage to speak clearly, to speak the truth, to speak to hearts through your spirit. Father, help me to do that. And I ask that you would help those that are hearing, that they would have ears to hear what the word of God is saying. Prepare their hearts now, this very moment, as we go through these scriptures. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay. The context. So we start out with this, and what's happened beforehand? Uh, Chapter 16, verse 1, the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test him. And the the last part of it, Jesus um, is talking about beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. So verse 12 says, Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So that's kind of the the context of where this all comes into play. that, That there's this bad teaching from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Be careful of it, beware of it, watch out for it. And so Jesus says, okay, I'm going to now make sure that you guys are clear on something. I'm going to ask you a question. So he starts out in verse 13. He says, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea uh, Philippi, he asked his disciples, here's the question, who do people say that the Son of Man is. Who do people say? It's sort of a, a man on the street. Who, 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 what are people saying about me? Who do people say that I am? And, and Jesus gets a pretty good report, doesn't he? Right? One of the long-awaited prophets is kind of the big answer. You know, in the Old Testament, all the way back from Deuteronomy on, there was this promise of a prophet that would come. Again and again and again, he's promised. The very last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, talks about the prophet Elijah coming, in the spirit of Elijah coming, to prepare the way for this other prophet. We know that was John the Baptist that came and did that preparation. So everybody knew that a prophet was coming. And so the answer is, well, some say John the Baptist. Remember, that's what Herod thought. They thought, thought Jesus was John the Baptist reincarnated after he had had his head cut off, right? Uh, maybe you're Elijah, maybe from Malachi, maybe Jeremiah, maybe one of the other prophets. Who do you say the Son of Man is? I was doing a little research earlier in the week on this. Uh, I guess it was last week. And I came across this article in the Atlantic magazine on this passage. I couldn't believe it. I occasionally read articles from the Atlantic, and they're not religious in any way, let me tell you. But this was. So the guy writes, and he says, Jesus was having a self-identity problem. He didn't know who he was. So he says, he's all nervous, and he goes to his disciples, he goes to his best friends, and he gathers them around, and he says, what are people saying about me? What are they calling me? Who am I? 
Well, here's the good report. But, but what about you guys? Who, who do you say that I am? And Jesus didn't really know. He was nervous. He was scared. He didn't know who he was. In the end, Peter tells him, and Jesus said, no, no, don't tell anybody. Shut up. Don't say anything. And the article, I couldn't even finish it. It was so bad. <laughs> right? It was so bad. Who do you say the Son of Man is? That's the question, isn't it? What do you think of Jesus? Who is he? So just a, a moment uh, uh, on this term. So, so Jesus actually gives self-identification right in the very question, doesn't he? He calls himself. Here's how I refer to myself. He re- does that more than any other name in the New Testament. If you go through all the Gospels, he refers to himself as the Son of Man over and over and over and over again. Most common. So he knows exactly who he is, and he names himself. Who is the Son of Man? So what does that mean? Well, if you go back to the Old Testament, in the book of uh, Ezekiel, it's used about 90 times for the prophet himself, and it emphasizes the humanness of the prophet. So on one hand, you have in the Old Testament this idea of humanness. And then you go a couple books further to the book of Daniel, And in Daniel, we see this this son of man as a glorified figure that rules alongside God. He's like God himself. So on the one hand, you have this, this, this humble, suffering servant, the humanness. And on the other hand, you have this, this glorious king, this glorious judge. And both of those things come up in this passage. A little further on, Jesus talks about him going to, to suffer many things. He's going to be killed. So it talks about his human side. He's going to the cross, yeah? And then a passage we didn't read a little further on in verse 27. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will judge. We see both of those things. So Son of Man has this connotation of the humanness of Jesus, the suffering servant going to the cross, but also this figure that comes later to judge. Both those things are tied up. So Jesus knew exactly who he was. There was no self-identification problem with him at all. He's asking them, what do you guys think? And that's exactly what he does. Verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? I'm glad, Blair, you read that with with some emphasis because in the Greek, it is very emphatic. He's like turning to them and really putting the finger on them. Fingers in in their face. Who do you say I am? Yeah? Who do you say? What does Peter answer? Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's a re- Say it again. Amen. Amen. Yeah, there we go. That's really the answer, right? You are the Christ. So let's break that down. Christ. It means the anointed one. It is used about 40 times in the Old Testament to refer to prophets. They were anointed by God. It was used of priests. They were anointed by God. 
it was used of kings. They were anointed. It means anointed. It means, it means the hand of God coming down upon you to anoint you to go serve and do something. Anointed. It means anointed. By the time of the first century, when this was spoken, it came to be a synonym for Messiah, right? Messiah, the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, the kingly fig- figure that's going to come and set everything right. The one that is going to come and, and, and fight the Romans and restore the Jews to prominence, to break off the shackles of bondage. It was an immensely charged title, politically charged. Think liberator of the oppressed. That's who you are. You are the Christ, the anointed the Messiah, but also the Son of the living God. Son speaks of that unique relationship that Jesus has with God and, and the fact that he does what God does. He is the Son. He acts like the Father. He does the works of the Father. He has that unique relationship. And he is the Son of the living God. In this particular city, it was known for worshiping idols particularly Pan, the god of nature. And then it became uh, an idol worship town for, for Caesar himself. And these, these dead idols, these, these dead stone idols were erected and people would fall down and worship them. We do not worship dead idols. We worship the living God, the God of life, do we not? So Peter lays it out in an amazing way. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. That is who you are. And Jesus responds, and what does he say? Blessed are you, Simon Peter. Blessed are you. Listen, there is a principle in Scripture. It's over and over and over. If you, in your life, take the time to bless God, to acknowledge God, to worship God. He in turn will bless you. Yes, he will. will. Amen? He will. Here's one example. Way back when, even before I was born, there was a king named David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, right? (laughs) So David was was an unbelievable man of God. He made his mistakes, but at one point he kind of wakes up and he says, I'm living in a palace. God, you're living in this old musty tent. God, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a temple. I can't believe I haven't seen this before. I am going to bless you, God, by building you the best temple in the world. And what does God say? Oh, David, (laughs) man, do I love you. That is so awesome. In fact, I'm going to build you a house. I am going to give you a dynasty. From you will come the ultimate king. So God, so David says, I'm going to bless you, God. And God says, no, I'm going to bless you. Over and over and over, you take the time to acknowledge and, and worship and bless God. He will do the same to you. He will do it in turn. And so Jesus does that here. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Oh, Peter, blessed are you. Blessed are you, yeah? Our worship is so important. It is so important. Okay. Now we come to the hard stuff. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, 
So Bar-Jonah, that means son of Jonah or son of John, right? It's kind of interesting. I don't know what to make of this. Son of man, it's talked about. You know, son of the living God. Now blessed are you, son of John. The three sons there, I'm not sure. My three sons. I got three sons. I don't know what to make of that. Um, blessed are you, Simon and Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So let's just think about that for a minute. It's the Father that reveals, Jesus says. It's not flesh and blood. It's not the world that we get our understanding of Jesus from. It's not the world that we get our understanding of God from. It's somebody out, something outside the world, yeah? It's, it's not the created things, although they can testify. It's from the creator himself, yeah? And, 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 and we serve, we worship a God who speaks, a God who communicates. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, God in many ways at various times spoke through the prophets. But in these last days, the days that you and I are living today, in these last days, he speaks how? Through his son. Yeah, God speaks through his son. If you want to know God, you go to Jesus. If you want to know the Father, you go to Jesus. He speaks through his son. The language that God uses is son language. He speaks through Jesus. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but the Father in heaven. Not from earth, but from heaven. Not from the physical world, but from the spiritual. And now, now in verse 18, I tell you. And Jesus uses that because what he's saying, he wants to emphasize. He says, I tell you, you are Peter, right? You are Peter, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Yeah? I'm Peter. So this is one of the most debated verses in the New Testament. There are articles and whole books written on this. What is the rock that Jesus is going to build his church on? It's one of the big questions. What is it? There are three main answers, right? Three main answers. I'm just going to give them to you, and then I'm going to tell you which one I like and why I like it. They're all kind of true in a way. So the first is, because we're, we're Protestants, we're so nervous about saying the church is built on, on Peter. We're really nervous about that. So we'll do anything to get away from that. Because our Catholic friends, they say Peter was, was really the first pope, and there's all this stuff that goes with him and all that. So as Protestants, we get nervous about that. And I don't mean to insult anybody here. It's just that we, as Protestants, get nervous about saying upon Peter. So, so the first thing is, well, it can't be Peter that he's talking about. It must be the statement, the statement statement that Peter made, that's the rock that the church is going to be made on, going to be built on, right? And what is the statement? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's true. Yeah, we, we, we all said amen. That's true. Is that really the rock, the foundation of the church? Wouldn't we say that while that is true, 
it misses a big piece. The church is built on the death and resurrection of Jesus, is it not? So to say that the church is built on that statement and that statement alone, I sort of say, yeah, it's true, but I don't think that's what Jesus is really saying. Okay? Take it or leave it. Secondly, the other thing is that what Jesus is saying is he's using a wordplay here with this idea of, of rock. Right? You guys probably, some of you probably know this. And he's really saying that it's upon me myself. So when you look at the, in the Greek, uh, the word Peter, he says, you are Peter, it means small stone, right? On this small stone, right, Peter means small stone, but on this rock, and the word for rock is a different word So in the Greek. So the word for Peter is Petros, the word for rock is Petra. The first Peter means small stone, Petra means bedrock, Okay, so a lot of people say, well, it, it can't, the church can't be built upon Peter. It's got to be built, up, built upon the bedrock. And who is the bedrock? It's Jesus. So what Jesus is doing is he's saying, yeah, you've said a great thing here. It's part of the truth, and you're a small stone. But really, the church is going to be built upon me. I am the bedrock. Boy, that sounds right, doesn't it? That sounds really right. However... It doesn't really, if you were to read through it the first time, you would probably not pick that up. You would probably not see that. Verse 18, I tell you, I'm talking to you, Peter, singular. The, 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 the pronoun, the personal pronoun is in the singular. I tell you, you are Peter. I'm going to name you. And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you. The, the subject is always Peter. So a first reading, you might say, well, it sure sounds like Peter is the rock the church is going to be built on, doesn't it? You think that's the answer? I do. And here's why. What, what Jesus is saying is, I am speaking to you personally, and you, Peter, are going to play a foundational role in the establishment of the church. And we are going to see that. I'm going to refer to it later when I talk about binding and losing. That's going to come out clearly in the book of Acts, that Peter had a foundational role. Ephesians 2, verse 20, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So I think he's really saying to Peter, yeah, you said a great thing. That's only part of it. Yeah, I am the, 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 the bedrock, Jesus says, but really I'm talking to you and I am going to use you in a foundational way to build the church. That's the way I see it. I think it's the best answer and I think it fits in with the idea of Peter having the keys, which we're going to talk about in a couple minutes. So what about this gates of hell thing? The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell. The word is Hades in the Greek. Hades. It's the same as Sheol in the Old Testament in Hebrew. It's the place of the dead. So the gates of the place of the dead. The gates of the dead shall not prevail. What's a gate? It's, it's sort of the entrance way or the exit way, right? The gates shall not prevail. It either holds something out or it holds something in. So what are the gates of hell? We often say that Satan and the, the evil spiritual forces, that Jesus has conquered them and the church will prevail over them. That's true. I don't think that's what this verse is talking about. 
And again, I want to go to the context of where we are here. A better interpretation might be this, that Jesus has victory over the place of death. He has victory over death. Death could not hold him. The gates of hell could not hold him. Yeah? And guess what? The gates of hell cannot hold us. Jesus is the first fruits. 1 Corinthians 15. He rose from the dead. We will rise from the dead. We have that same promise. Here's what I think. That Jesus is saying, death, oh, where is your victory? Where is your sting? I have conquered it, and so will you. The church will conquer death. Thank you. I think that's the way it is. In Revelation 1, Jesus says, fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Jesus, those gates cannot hold him. They cannot hold us. Okay, hope that's helpful. Now, the keys, the keys. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What are the keys? So the keys continue this metaphor of the church being a house, the church being a building, right? And keys, they, they, they admit or they deny entrance, right? If you have your key, you, you're able to get in the door, right? So Peter, and he's speaking to it, I will give you, singular, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. A little further in Matthew 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. So in the context of scribes and Pharisees and the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees and the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus says, Peter, you have the keys. They don't have them. Peter has the keys. So Peter's mission, therefore, is to give people access to the kingdom, and this mission involves preaching the gospel. Book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. All kinds of crazy things happen, and people say, what on earth is going on? Who rises up? Peter rises up, and he preaches the gospel. And 3,000 people are admitted to the kingdom that very day. Yes, Peter used the keys to admit people to the, gospel, to the, to the kingdom through preaching of the gospel. Acts chapter 4, Peter preached, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven in which we must be saved. 5,000 souls were admitted to the kingdom. Acts chapter 8, Peter goes to the Samaritans. He preaches Jesus, and they're let into the kingdom. Acts chapter 10, the whole Gentiles. Remember, Peter preaches to the Gentiles. He talks to this guy, Cornelius. The keys are used to open the door to the Jews, to the Samaritans, to the Gentiles. That was Peter's work. That's what he did. He used those keys to admit people to the kingdom of heaven. And I believe Say it again. 
We have the keys. That authority goes from Peter to us today. We have the keys of the kingdom of heaven. We have the, the key that will allow you entrance, and it is the gospel of Jesus. It is the gospel of Jesus. We should wear them on our, like a little key ring or something, right? And this flows into the next part, the whole idea of binding and loosing. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What is this idea of binding and losing? First of all, it's a technical term used back then by the rabbis. It was the authority of the rabbis to declare what's forbidden and what's permitted. They were the rule makers. And Jesus takes that term and he applies it or reapplies it in a couple of ways. First here in Matthew 16, he applies it to the terms of entrance or exclusion from the kingdom. And I'll talk about that in a minute. Second, if you look over in Matthew 18, he talks about uh, how Jesus applies it to how we deal with the church and how people behave. And I'll talk about that in a minute. So, the idea of the entrance to the kingdom. Peter is given authority to declare the terms under which God grants entrance to and exclusion from the kingdom. Let me give an example. Here is the gospel. If you believe that Jesus took your sins away, that he suffered on the cross, that he died, that he was raised again on the third day, you will be saved. That's a term of being loosed from your sins. Your sins are gone, taken away forever. However, if you do not believe that, if you do not believe the Son, it says the wrath of God abides upon you forever. John 3. You are bound in your sins. That's the message we tell people today. It's positive and it's negative. You have to believe. You have to trust. If you don't, you're still in your sins. And the wrath of God will be upon you. That's the two sides of the gospel. Binding and losing. In Matthew 18, you know the passage. If someone sins against you, you go to them. And you try to work it out. If they won't hear you, you bring a couple friends and say, please, we, we got to work this out. They won't hear that. You bring it before the church, right? You, you want to, the idea is reconciliation. That's what God wants is reconciliation between brothers and sisters in Christ. Bring it before the church and hopefully the person will repent and will be reconciled, yeah? But what if they won't do that? Then it says you treat them in a certain way. You basically say to them, look, the privileges of the church are now denied from you. You can't participate in the way that you would have. Your behavior causes us to have to reject you in a certain way. I know this is hard to hear, but it's all throughout the New Testament. It's a teaching of the New Testament. Sometimes we call it church discipline. Amazingly, here's a, here's a scary thing. Peter used this very thing 
in Acts chapter 5. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? They came and they lied. They lied. And what happened to them? They were carried out feet first, one after the other. Who did all that? Who was there to talk through that? It's Peter. Finding and losing. Paul does it in 1 Corinthians 5. There, is a, there was a person caught up in, in, in the sin of fornication and adultery. And he said, they're not going to repent. Listen, you have to do something to, to try to get reconciliation. You have to have them see the gravity of their sin. Therefore, don't even eat with them. You have to stay back. And then he uses that term leaven. A little leaven leavens a whole lump. This idea that sin in the body has an effect upon all of us. We have a responsibility to say, no, you, you can't be a part of us anymore because of your sin. Binding and losing has to do with the gospel of the kingdom, and it has to do with the discipline of the church later. Those are the two things. It comes up in, in uh, Matthew 18. Also, John 20, if you want to look at it there as well. Same thing. Okay, binding and losing. There it is. And then verse 20 comes along. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now that's a funny thing, isn't it? I thought we were go out to go out into the, to the neighborhoods and preach Jesus. I thought we were supposed to declare it from the roof, rooftops. I thought we were supposed to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth. Don't tell anybody, Jesus said. Why? Why? Notice the term that he says, don't tell. Don't tell anybody I'm the Christ. Remember, this is an incredibly politically charged term in those days. Jesus says, I'm not ready for that. I'm not ready. At one point earlier in, in Matthew's gospel, uh, it says the people were going to take him by force to make him a king. And Jesus had to walk away from that. He, it's on his terms only. It's on his timetable. He says, I'm not ready. Instead, I want to talk about something else. I want to fill out the story a little more. Don't tell him I'm the Christ. But from that time, verse 21, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and then be raised on the third day. So Peter says, look, I am the anointed one. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. But I have to go to Jerusalem. I have to suffer. I have to die. I have to be resurrected. That has to happen. And it says he began. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples. He does it four times in the book of Matthew alone. He's hammering it away. So if you think about it, this first section talked about the person of Jesus. Yeah? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. His person, who he is. This now begins to talk about his mission. This is what he has to do. So we see it's his person and his works. His person and his works, they go together. And Peter kind of got only half the story, right? He only got half the story. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, No, Lord, no, I have been with you for almost three years now. 
I have seen you walk on the water. I have seen you calm the sea. I have seen you raise the dead. I have seen you heal the sick. You're not going to die. No way. You can put yourself in that place. Can't you see yourself saying that? I know I can. But it was only half the story. Yes, Jesus is the coming king. Yes, he is the, the uh, anointed Messiah. But he's the suffering servant. And you must have both. You must have both. And Jesus says something very shocking in response. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus is saying very simply, if you try to keep me from the cross, you are doing the work of the enemy. If you don't get my identity and my mission right, you are doing the work of the enemy. Remember the temptation of Jesus way back in Matthew 4? Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights out in the wilderness. Satan comes to tempt him. And what is the attack? He attacks his very identity. If you are the son of God, turn these stones to bread. Yeah? If you are the Son of God, jump off and the angels will carry you. If you are the Son of God, I will give you all the kingdoms. In other words, Satan was offering Jesus the kingship without the cross. And that's just what Peter's doing, yeah? So be careful. Be careful how you deal with Jesus. His person and his work has to go together. So that brings me to the takeaways. Oh, we're doing good on time. Okay, the first takeaway. We must get our understanding of who Jesus is from God himself. This is throughout this passage. I've lost my place. Here we are. Verse 13, who do people say I am? We don't get our understanding about who Jesus is from the popular culture, from social media. We feel that pressure immensely upon ourselves. You can't get it from there. We don't look to the people. Verse 17, it's not from flesh and blood. It's not from this world. It's not from us. It has to be from outside us from the king of heaven, Jesus, uh, God himself. We have to be careful of the influence of the enemy. The enemy would love to subvert our understanding of who Jesus is. When you look down through the history of the church, when these blasphemous doctrines came up, it was always about Jesus, always about his person or his work. And we see that today. People don't want to accept that Jesus had to suffer the wrath of God. They say, no, that's, that's, that's child abuse, and they run from it. You need to get your understanding from God himself. And then verse 23, setting your mind on things of God or on the things of man. Jesus says to Peter, you're setting your mind on things of man. You have to get your understanding of who I am from God, and there is one voice above all others, the Father from heaven. We must set our mind on the things of God. How do we do that? 
How do we do that? First and foremost, I'm going to give you three. First and foremost, the scriptures, right? You knew that was coming, the Bible. We have to base it on what the scriptures say about Jesus, about his work, and about his mission, and about his person. It has to be biblically based. Second, we have to look to the Christian community to help us with boundaries. It's very easy to go off and have our own ideas about Scripture. We use Christian history, uh, the fellowship of the saints, to bound ourselves, to make sure that we're still in the faith. It's a help to us. If we're thinking something about the death of Jesus, we, we, we go talk to our friends about it. Do I have this right? Do I have this right? Am I okay with that? And then thirdly, prayer. You want to see Jesus? You want to see the Son of God? You ask God, God, show me your Son. God will bless you with that. God loves nothing more than to reveal His Son to you. Pray. The Word of God, the fellowship of the saints can help us. And then pray. I can't tell you how often in our community groups we are reading through Scripture after Scripture after Scripture. And we're worshiping. And we come away and we know Jesus more. And together, you know, we're like facets of a jewel. We all come with different experiences. We all come with different knowledge. We all come with different thoughts. And we bring that together and it's all glorifying to God. And we know Jesus better. We worship him. Okay. Two. Jesus, the church, will prevail. Look at the news. The world is a mess. I sometimes say it's worse than I've ever seen it in my life. Everywhere you look is a disaster. And it's so easy for us to get dragged down. That's flesh and blood, that's things of man. It's good to know our times and what we're living in. But know this, that no matter how bad it gets, no matter what happens with the wars, the virus, the climate, any of it, Jesus and his church will prevail. We will have the victory. He is able to keep us and sustain us. We have nothing to fear. We have Jesus, his person and his work. He died for us. He rose again, and we worship him. Jesus will prevail. Number three, you and I have a responsibility to use those keys. First, with the gospel, to clearly describe the entrance to the kingdom of heaven, and that is only through Jesus. It is through Jesus. We have a responsibility to preach the gospel, don't we not? To bring Jesus to people. For some reason, God has chosen to use us as mouthpieces. And we go and we talk to people about our Jesus. You can talk about anything, but when you talk about Jesus, everything changes. The whole conversation changes because we are talking about life and death. We are talking about eternity. We have to bring the gospel. Secondly, it's discipleship, right? 
discipleship, to help our brothers and sisters understand through the scriptures what is acceptable and what is not acceptable behavior, right? When we have our community groups, when we have our teachings from up here, a lot of it has to do with how we act in this world. We help people understand. And what is the mission of New King? To help people, as many people as possible, find the gospel, Jesus, and follow Jesus. That's discipleship. That's what we do. That's what we're about. And finally, back to the, to the main question. Who do you? Who do you think the Son of Man is? Will you consider him this morning? If you haven't put your trust in Jesus, as the scripture says, behold, today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. Consider Jesus. Put your trust in him. Believe in him. He will take your sins away and usher you into the kingdom of God and your life will never be the same. I went to a little Bible study 40 years ago because my girlfriend asked me to go. I heard the gospel. I believed it that very first time. The guy read from Galatians 2, the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And he looked up and he said, do you believe that? And man, I thought he was talking to me. I thought I was the only one in the room. And I stopped and I said to myself, yes, I do believe it. And my life was changed in a moment. I've never looked back. I, yes, I've had my struggles as a Christian, but my life was changed. Believe Jesus. Believe Jesus. If you don't know how to do that, if you need help, talk to one of the leaders. Talk to the person beside you. I want to trust Jesus. And that brings us to the last part. You know what worship is? I've, I've said it before here, I think. Eric's definition of worship, acknowledging God for who he is, yeah, and what he's done, what he's done. Who he is and what he's done, his person and his works. And don't we have that in this chapter? Don't we have that in this chapter? We have the person of Jesus, the Christ, the, the Messiah, the anointed, the anointed one, the son of the living God, and now we have his works. I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer. I must die. I must be raised again. That's what worship is, acknowledging with our mouths and our hearts the person and the work of our Savior Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We ask this morning that you would reveal him to us more fully so that we may see his person and his work more clearly. I pray that you would help each of us to see him better so that we can worship him. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.